Dr. Nicole LaPera is a clinical psychologist and owner of The Holistic Psychologist. We chat about the three core human needs, the subtle ways people compensate for not having those needs met, and the steps that anyone can take to feel more authentically confident and connected to their true self. First question that I wanted to chat with you about was the needs of the spirit or soul as you talk about it. I feel like um, when I thought about personal needs, and I think many people think about needs, they're aware of like food, water, shelter, perhaps even a sense of belonging. But you outlined three, which are to be seen, to be heard, and to express oneself authentically. And I'd like to dive into those. But the first thing that I notice is that I think most people do not identify a deficiency of those things in their lives, even if there may have been a tremendous deficiency. So I'm curious if you could just sort of unpack what these things are, why they're so important, and how come people don't realize the lack of them. Yeah, I think really generally, and then I could dive into a little bit more specific, I think I often describe us as, you know, like the horse with blinders on it. We've mm -hmm. become so familiar with, you know, just to use my language, our very habitual, conditioned, familiar way of being. Um, and for many of us, then to speak to your point, it doesn't include um, an expression of the deeper sense of self. Um, for some of us, it doesn't really even include tending to emotional needs um, and really more of a focus on the physical. So on the surface level, we only have become familiar and habituated and used to ourself in one way. So even asking those questions for a lot of us doesn't occur to us. And I think for very many reasons passed through generations is because, I mean, I was even raised by um, older parents who my dad is now upwards. He's 86 years old. Mm. And contextually across generations, I mean, there was even in the psychological field, as wild as this might be to say, there wasn't much talk of emotional needs. Um, there really was this focus on, like you're saying, the physical body. I know like certain things I have to do. Um, mm -hmm. And again, I think without that awareness, and as always, I will break um, kind of change, transformation, actualizing ourself into two steps without understanding or knowing really simplistically that, oh, that we have this deeper self that desires to be seen, to be heard, to be expressed, to be understood. I could take it a step further to be authentic in a relationship and mm -hmm. connect it safely with others, regardless of what that expression is. Um, we, without that awareness, we then are unable to even make choices to reconnect with that space. And again, for reasons then, if we want to dive, continue into that, this need conversation, much like um, Maslow and his hierarchy of needs, I actually adapted one in, in my past workbook, I put out how to meet yourself. I'm calling it the authentic needs pyramid, which honors mm. that reality. Unless we're safely grounded and our body is sending those signals of safety to our mind, um, our body plays a big role in terms of how we can even navigate our emotional needs, right? So putting our physical needs at the foundation, the need for nutrients, the need for oxygen, the need for water, the need for rest and movement, restorative sleep, then we're not going to be capable of navigating our emotional needs to be self-expressed. I mean, we're emotional beings and to be safely connected and supported by others in that emotional self-expression, then we're definitely not going to be able to be safe enough to drop into what our deepest desires are, what we want to say, express. And I mm -hmm. think we really want to detail those further, our inherent creativity, our inherent imagination. Um, and those, I think, are our drives that, again, we don't know we have and we don't maybe have the tools to express even if we have an idea of this 
concept of self-actualizing or I know for your work, self-improvement and reaching mm -hmm. kind of those those places, we don't we're not equipped um, yeah. physiologically really to do that. It seems like there, it's almost a gift of life that you're unaware of those things of which were not met, but it also can become an obstacle as you mentioned the word safety. When I think of my upbringing and, you know, my middle class type of upbringing, everyone around me like I was safe. I was I was very safe. I lived in a neighborhood and nothing, nobody ever came and assaulted me. And I think it's been tough for me to sink into the truth of some of the ways in which I was emotionally unsafe in what everyone around me and me deeply believed was like the pinnacle of a loving uh, circumstance. So I see it both as, as this gift of growing, which is like, oh, everything's perfect. But also it does block you from understanding the ways in which uh, you're not totally authentic or you're incapable of even recognizing that you're not being totally in, uh, authentic, which has been a struggle for me and I think for everybody is whether it comes through therapy, breath work, meditation, something, an acknowledgement of a pain that might be 20, 30 years old in my case that you just had no idea about. And that's something that has been just consistently startling to me and I appreciate about your work because it gives clues as to, you know, where might you begin to find these things that you're only partially aware of. So I was wondering, maybe we can begin to dive into ways in which you know, what is a clue that maybe what someone hasn't been seen or heard or isn't able to express themselves authentically, even if they don't immediately identify those things as having been uh, not fully met in their lives? Yeah, very, very similar to you. Um, you know, I had a narrative of I had a mm -hmm. healthy, close, happy, connected mm -hmm. family only to come to realize, you know, and again, it wasn't a, a moment of realization. Um, for me, it was a moment of, of noticing the lack of self. And what I mean by that was, I mean, I, I very rarely in my relationships, in my life, in all of these pattern ways, I got very good at kind of showing up, right? Knowing myself in one context. And for me, that was through achievement, um, mm -hmm. through, you know, being successful, checking the boxes, having the relationship, showing up within what I thought was being a good, you know, partner, daughter, or sister, or whatever it was. And what I came to realize when, of course, I wasn't feeling fulfilled and connected to the life that I created that I thought was going to, you know, translate to those feelings, I, I saw how on few occasions I actually paused to, to check in with me. Um, mm. So I think that for a lot of us, you know, again, the awareness begins by exploring, like, am I actually, you know, to self-express to someone else, to be seen, heard, and understood, right? And this might sound really simplistic, that assumes that we have that degree of connection with ourselves. that we take a moment mm -hmm. to pause and say, well, what do I want mm -hmm. if it's around our physical body? What does my body need right now? What do I need to express emotionally? What's going on for me? Am I even connected to those physiological shifts and changes? Because that's what emotions are that originate in my body. So mm -hmm. without that, and I used to right think I was doing all of that and left feeling emotionally disconnected in my relationships, I had no other, you know, option, but I thought it was the person's problem, right? You're mm -hmm. not connecting to me emotionally, only to realize when I really hit pause and was like, okay, why are you, you know, suffering the way you are? Why does not this life feel good for you? You know, I saw that I actually didn't know what I wanted. I didn't mm -hmm. really understand my emotions. I really wasn't seeing myself expressing myself to myself, all of that, again, 
based in safety. I love how you're beautifully mm-hmm. bringing this in. Because in childhood, without that emotional connection, I did have physically present parents who mm-hmm. were attentive to me in certain instances and occasions. Though when it came to navigating the rest of my emotional world, there was little room for anything outside of stress and worry in my mm-hmm. home with a lot of chronic health issues and a lot of health crises. Mm-hmm. That was our, our, our only emotional language. So yeah. the reality of it is, and I think our first marker you know, if we want to feel something reflected back in us, whether it's in a relationship or the world, we want to feel seen, heard, you know, and expressed, then we really have to see, do I have that connection? Do I know what I want to say, what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling? Can I express it in a way that's safe for those around me? And I think the large majority of us, and we feel shameful, I think, when the answer is is no. Or when we do know, though for conditioned reasons, often again, based in safety, because I've learned not to share what my real thoughts are because yeah. I get told stop being stop. so dramatic, <laughs> yeah, yeah. right? Or, or I've learned to gain safety because I've had to show up in service of someone else or monitoring their moods because I have an explosive parent or like me, a detached parent. So I had to become attuned to when they were available and when they weren't. So Mm-hmm. I might instinctually, right, know what my truth is in terms of this authentic, deeper self, but I might be censoring or overriding it because that's the only way I've learned to create safe, somewhat safe, I'm obviously putting right, my, yeah. my ears, connections in my childhood because that's the, the reality of it. We all become so familiar with what we've learned about ourselves, with our narratives, with the way of being mm-hmm. in childhood, and we continue to repeat that not only because it's hardwired, because that gives us that false sense of safety. Mm-hmm. I, I think uh, at this point, it's important. Uh, you and I, it sounds like, are very much on the same page. But for those in the audience, I, it, I find it's often very important to take time and be like, this is not to drag your parents down. This is uh, because there is such, I think it's probably a near universal child thing to protect wow. the form of love that one received as a child. And that can take a lot of forms. It can be an aggressive defense that is, no, 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 that's not what it's like. But it can also look like you're listening to this and just go, ah, oh, that's not me. This doesn't apply to me. And I just want to flag that as, listen, let's let's talk about some of the clues that some of those things might have been there. And none of this is to say that your parents weren't wonderful, didn't do the best that they could, didn't do better than their parents did for them. And that luckily, it does seem that collectively, we're able to offer each generation perhaps a little bit more than we got. And in doing that, that is not to drag down what the the prior generation did. It is to help you give even more to your children and to yourself today. Because I know that it uh, can feel like, oh my God, I'm attacking my mother, I'm attacking my father, and that's just wrong when, when we talk about these sort of topics. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing that up. And I think that is kind of wired into us instinctually. I mean, Mm -hmm. these are the humans upon which we were completely dependent in our childhood Mm -hmm. for all of our needs, right? And again, I think there's cultural messaging and a lot that that gets kind of entangled in there that I think a byproduct though of, and the reason why I'm always describing the, you know, underlying neurophysiology or the nervous system, kind of all of the stuff and to speak to your point, even societally, you know, there was information that like I was sharing this idea of emotional needs, right? That wasn't a conversation. Mm-hmm. There was, there's a societal evolution in the information that's shared and the resources that the generations that came before us have had access to. Though 
mm-hmm. a, a big part of the healing journey in, in that kind of first step of awareness. I think when we have a new way of understanding um, why we're struggling and, and just focusing on the self first, right? Kind of if we have new language to the reason we're stuck is because, again, we're wired this way. This is the only way we've learned to gain safety. Now we can be more compassionate to our own experience. And I think a byproduct of healing that we extend that, we have a greater mm-hmm. ability than to extend that compassion that to our, our, and our empathy, right, to our parents. We're able to pull back even for those of us who, and just to play another scenario back, who have parents who have greatly caused, you know, trauma and harm mm-hmm. and we don't even want to think and we don't even care to be compassionate mm-hmm. toward them, right? I think we can expand and kind of have a different level of understanding um, with why certain things happened or certain things didn't happen, whatever the case was for each of us. Yeah, yeah. So I'd love to talk about that seen, heard, authentic expression and some of the subtle ways that I think broadly that was sh- it was not really available 10, 20, 30 years ago. So you gave a really great example of a well-meaning parent and probably something that I've done in a lot of people, which is a kid comes home from first day of school and says, mom, I'm so sad. I don't have any friends. Nobody sat with me. And they say, don't worry about it. It's the first day of school. It'll get better. And that is a broader pattern of not creating space for the seriousness of a child's reality of pain, suffering, and exclusion in a rush to solve that problem by so quickly moving them away from pain. And the patterning that that can create that I know that I experienced was one of whenever you experience an uncomfortable emotion, rather than take it to these people who can harbor it, hold it, create space for it, solve it. And that's a wonderful skill to have. That's a wonderful skill to have. You know, I'm going to go make the friend, but it has its limits. And then there are things that can't be snap solved that are now not even registering consciously. And there are problems that lingered in my life for 20 years that I was unconscious of, you know, uh, subterraneanly ruining relationships and making me feel uncomfortable in all sorts of ways that I wasn't even aware of. So I'd love to, if you could just dive into more examples of these subtle ways that well-meaning parents, um, culturally might have just done things that made their children feel unseen, unheard, and unable to express themselves authentically. Yeah. And I think, you know, that that comes from um, we, a lot of us, you know, even parents, we, we kind of project from our own experience, right? So when we hear a child, you know, kind of share something, you know, we can minimize, like you're saying, mm-hmm. the exclusion, the isolation, you know, what was happening. We're really simply kind of we're speaking from our mature adult perspective mm-hmm. where we've weathered that on occasions and we either can it relate better. or can't relate and <laughs> it does get better. We've lived enough yeah. repetitions of that mm-hmm. happening, right? We mm-hmm. have to though remember, and this I think we struggle with outside of even relationships with children. I see us mm-hmm. as adults and myself included struggle in other relationships with adults because we struggle to separate our experience and to create space for a different experience, whether it's developmentally different or just because they're a unique, diverse, individually mm-hmm. different, right? We do have that natural tendency to kind of color things as it is for us. And then a deeper, I think, you know, thing that happens. And again, there's many different versions of, you know, when parents can be speaking from their much more matured, lived experience perspective that can feel very invalidating. So that's what it feels like mm-hmm. for the child, emotionally invalidating. You're telling me that what is feeling and is so big in my world right? Isn't, isn't that big. Mm -hmm. And it also, you know, I think comes out and 
around or what I think what triggers it, I should say, or what activates it really at the core is the parent quite literally in that moment is feeling a discomfort themselves, whether mm-hmm. it's because it's activating all of the times where they were isolated and alone, left at school, maybe the exact same experience that the child is sharing, right? Or it's triggering a normal, compassionate discomfort when someone you love mm-hmm. is upset. And again, this applies to a lot of relationships, even to adulthood that we do. So the reason we go into problem-solving mode is oftentimes to relieve both of us, right? If we solve the problem, neither of us have to be uncomfortable in that moment. Yeah. Um, so again, that's another kind of form of invalidation. And there's other scenarios outside of, you know, what's happening to us being minimized, sometimes within the relationship, right, with a parent. And again, another well-meaning example I do want to give um, that often happens, again, as a byproduct of a parent's childhood, right? So say we have, they've had a childhood where their parents were physically or emotionally not present. So now they're going to be really present, almost mm-hmm. what I would describe <laughs> like a helicopter parent, right? Yeah. They're going to be right there telling you what they think, walking alongside of you overriding your own boundaries, your own separate space, your own ability even to solve and create solutions for yourself. So again, I, I, I'm interested and I like that we're kind of going down well-meaning examples, mm-hmm. right, that on the other end of it um, are, are, can be problematic the more consistently it happens. Of course, we're not talking about the one occasion where you said that because you were tired yeah. or you just didn't have the bandwidth, right? We're talking about when consistently the child comes home or when consistently the parent is helicoptering around and telling them what to think or how to dress or what to say or what not to feel, you know, in a very well-meaning way. Why? Because I'm trying to protect you for your own best interest. This can also look like, just a third example, um, in terms of achievement for very well-meaning ways. A lot of us are given messages. A lot of us informed by culture with this idea of what it, you know, this level of achievement we have to aspire to, sometimes for financial reasons, sometimes to help the financial or create financial security for our family members, right? Mm -hmm. Very understandable, well-meaning reasons, though for some of us, right, only one aspect of our self-expression, achieving and whatever that Mm -hmm. looks like, right, being the doctor, being the successful financially successful person who can bring honor, you know, actual financial resources to the family, though, again, very well-meaning, even very understandable where it's coming from, though the message and the, you know, to the child is only this aspect of yourself is to be seen, heard, and celebrated when in reality, right, there's, and this very much applied to me, there's so much more um, of who I am and what I am that's being in over time, even by my own self, pushed under the rug because of what I've learned and the conditioning. Yeah, it's it's making me realize, and perhaps you've already seen this, that there's this dynamic where, let's say you have a parent who grew up very poor, and then they raise this child, <laughs> and they say, not that. We're not going to do that. We're going to be raised in a household of <laughs> abundance, and, you know, and they push that. I think of my own life. Uh, I experienced abuse, sexual abuse as a kid, and I notice... And my not that, it's very tough for me to be physically touchy with like people that I love, especially if it's not like a girlfriend or something like that. And there's this unconscious pull to protect against the particular kind of trauma that you experienced. And in doing so, you can swing so far to the Mm -hmm. other side because you haven't actually gone into the pain. You've just said, I'm not looking at it. We're not going back there. We're not going back to the poor house. We're not going back to being abused. 
And we're going to stay so far away from that that you're still being controlled by that experience and unable to land in, oh, we don't need to achieve all the time. We have enough. Or I can give a loving touch. You know, I, I, I know what this feels like versus when it violates something. And uh, that dynamic of not looking backwards because you go, nope, just anything but that can create just a brand new reactionary trauma for the next generation. And I think that's why it is so important that people do slow down and take the time to uh, to heal these things in a different way than by simply avoiding repetition. 100%. And thank you, um, Charlie, for yeah. sharing you know that aspect of, of your journey. And what I want to add here as well is this, this conversation and the, the action of healing Right, in those moments really does go beyond just having the awareness that you've overcompensated or gone to a side or where the behavior mm-hmm. is coming from, right? This is, again, why I've really shifted not only my own healing journey, but the work that I do now into a more holistic, right? Where that does include the body that is, mm-hmm. you know, kind of the subconscious and the body that's communicating with that brain, you know, all hours of the day that's, you know, creating those lived patterns because it's not just a matter of having that insight or that first step of knowing where mm-hmm. this comes from it's yeah. actually a matter of making consistent daily choices that many of us need to include our body and our nervous system so that we actually can begin to make some new choices and rewire those networks which is absolutely possible regardless of whatever age you are our brain and our body can create change at any time Though I think that's a, an important aspect of this conversation and the the way in which many of us are stuck, right? We know, and this can be very shameful and frustrating experience, yet we can't change because we're not going to be able to unless we do make new choices to become safer in our expression, like you're saying, to actually teach our body that certain levels of physical closeness mm-hmm. are can be trusted. And you can trust yourself mm-hmm. to navigate those boundaries and not to cross your own or someone else's, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lived experience that only happens when you do, when you make those actions. And those actions, again, have to include our body and our nervous system and you know that awareness that that is playing a role and oftentimes why we're stuck in that abyss of like, okay, I know. And mm-hmm. yet, like you're saying, mm-hmm. like, I know that touch can be helpful and healing, yet I, I just physically, right, I'm struggling to do that. Or me, I can know that there's so much more of me and I can, you know, be more mm-hmm. in my self-expression than achievement. Yet in the moments of doing it, right, everything from my subconscious and all that discomfort in my body is still present. Yeah, the body work was a huge, huge, and I mean, this all flowed from body work. The truth is, cognitively, I could have told you any of these stories, but <laughs> they, there wouldn't have been uh, a felt, resonance and certainly not any degree of meaningful healing by being able to say, oh, this happened, that caused this. So what types of, uh, I guess, modalities or daily habits do you see uh, have the most positive impact on people when it comes to really rewiring that nervous system to be able to do things in a different way? So I like to always kind of talk on two levels. The first are the the most annoying level. I think the foundational mm-hmm. habits of, of caring for a physical body and a nervous system, mm-hmm. right? That bottom layer of that pyramid. Really, again, for a lot of us, that begins with, this might sound really silly, reconnecting, right, with the body that we're living in, right? Tuning into my nutritional needs, my needs for rest or movement, how I'm breathing to make sure I'm, you know, not in a stress state when I'm doing that. I'm getting the oxygen that my cell needs. So again, that's foundational and there's our foundational commitments. I continue to 
hold myself accountable to. And I'm being very intentional when I say that because that's not my conditioned habit and pattern. My conditioned habit and pattern is to look outside of myself for, you know, even directives around what to eat, when to eat, right? How to care for my body. It was never asking my own body. I tend to then push my body to the side when I'm busy or I have things to accomplish, you know, busy seasons like this. These are the mornings where it's a very difficult choice for me to say, no, Nicole, go out there and spend, you know, 30 minutes with Mm -hmm. your body. So those are the conditions. One more to this. You, you wrote, I thought it was so fascinating that so many of your patients had irritable bowel syndrome. And I find that disconnection with one's gut and literally the ability to take a poop when you need to go to the bathroom because you are in public or it'll make noise or something. I, it is something people don't talk about, but it's so widespread this, uh, deep shame as around everything related to the fact that you are a human body that defecates and the disconnection necessary to hold it in when it's inappropriate or not this. And I'm not saying that people should go around pooping their pants, but like there is, there is, uh, for me, when I started working at home, and could go to the bathroom at leisure, I was like, oh, my irritable bowel is clearing up because I am listening to when I have to go to the bathroom and not sitting politely in a meeting for an extra 10, 15 minutes when I feel the urge to go. But I just have gotten so good at controlling that and stuffing it down that my body now listens to this this guy up here instead of receiving signals and telling me, hey, we got to walk out now. This is not as important <laughs> as going to the bathroom. Yeah, I, I love, I mean, I love that example. And the reality of it is, I mean, not to go down a whole nother uh, rabbit hole <laughs> conversation though, I think of school. Yeah. We had to raise our hand, right? And yes. say, can I go to the bathroom now? And sometimes Crazy. if there was a lesson that you need, you know, the answer was no. No. Right? So again, and then more, more so, how were bodies treated? And I just think of my own family, bodies were hidden. They were shameful. Mm -hmm. They were judged. They were criticized. They weren't something to be seen and celebrated. I did have a family. Actually, interestingly Mm -hmm. enough, the girls in my family, my mom, my sister, and I were very comfortable talking about poop and going to the bathroom and all that. (laughs) My dad, however, to this day is like, gross, how you get away from you? So I did have some level of comfort and I was on the other side of irritable bowel. I had constipation um, that was so severe. I mean, it would be weeks sometimes. And mm. this again was a state not of my own at my mom had constipation. My dad, the whole family was constipated. Yeah. Why? Not because it was genetically, you know, gifted to me because I came to realize my nervous system was so shut down. It was in that mm-hmm. dorsal vagal state where our digestion stops completely. Now with a lot of healing in my body, I have normal digestion. But again, just illustrating all the different messages to speak to your beautiful point, Charlie, that we get around bodies that that turn us away or disgust us or shame us from looking to the valuable wisdom. And I, you know, had to create that shift for myself, pausing and learning how to even attune to my body's hunger signals and needs for rest. And then more so, not only notice, be able to make choices honoring them, even if the people around me because this is an area I really struggled, weren't, weren't eating or Mm -hmm. eating something different or for me around achievement, weren't resting and I needed to rest, right? All of these were moments where I could maybe tell my body was exhausted, but I was so concerned about how it would be if I was resting and someone else was working and what would they think, right? So now all of my conditioned, you know, overachieving beliefs were overriding. And this is, again, the battle that many of us are in where either we're not attuned to our body, it's not a safe place. We didn't learn how, we didn't learn that our body has signals to tend to or 
you know, eating because it's a certain time of the day or eating because we have so much food on our plate, even if we're full, or we are aware and for some conditioned reason, we've told ourselves that we shouldn't listen mm-hmm. in that moment. Yeah. And uh, so I interrupted you. You were going through the, the uh, body practices of someone and that was the basic of like, listen yes. to your body's needs, listen. which on the other yes. side of irritable bowel was I could eat a bag of pretzels and not even blink. And it's like, well, that's not really going to be very good for your digestion because I was disconnected from the felt sense mm-hmm. of what I just knew I'm crunching, I'm crunching, I'm crunching, I'm crunching. This feels nice as opposed mm-hmm. to like what is occurring inside. Oh, I'm full. Like I, I could yeah. blow right past that signal. So we have listening to the body. And then what are the other things that can start to bring us so, back into? Absolutely. So those are the consistent ones, right? Noticing all the disconnections, other things that we're making choices around. And then we can get really specific in terms of learning our bodies. I keep focusing on the nervous system for for a particular reason beginning to notice our body's different stress states. Because when we're in a stress or a nervous system response, or you know, we're going to then probably go down that same habitual pathway of, of reactivity. And the large majority of us are living with a chronically dysregulated nervous system. So mm-hmm. now beyond, right, kind of the foundational, and the more consistently we make those foundational choices to listen to our body and tend to its needs, the more our, our body naturally will downshift, right, from that sympathetic state, it will begin to feel safer because a large reason why our body, you know, is in that reactive state is because we're not meeting its needs. Though again, getting really attuned in real time to our body's stress responses, because those are then the acute moments where we become explosive, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe just like our, our in our home had happened or we become hypervigilant because in our home, that's the only way we've learned to deal with stress is by monitoring or controlling the environment mm-hmm. around us. And, you know, when I'm thinking and talking and my newest book being about relationships, for a lot of us, the reason why we're so stuck, whether it's in active conflict or in just disconnected, unfulfilling relationships, right, is because our bodies, it's actually our body's stress response that's returning to that habitual framework that it learned in childhood. How we related in childhood probably will be how we relate in adulthood, mm-hmm. right? The way we navigate our emotions, our inability for many of us to deal with stress and other upsetting emotions, probably, because that's all a function of our nervous system, will probably be reflective of the things that worked in our earliest environments. Though as we age and develop relationships, they probably, those ways aren't, aren't serving ourselves, and they're definitely probably not serving our relationships because they're just keeping us stuck in either those explosive cycles or those disconnected cycles. So that our body stress yeah. response becomes, right, how am I breathing in real time? What's causing, what's happening contextually? What is my mind telling me in these moments of escalated stress awareness? And then can I do something to calm and regulate my emotions? Because that's going to allow me to stay connected to my more grounded prefrontal cortex, right? The ability Mm -hmm. to maybe drop in and connect. I would always reference our heart as being a great place to drop into in terms of instinct and intuition, especially if we want to be connected in our relationships, right? Now I have choices to make outside of those conditioned ways that I've learned to feel safe. So outside of the, again, consistent things, being really acutely aware in real time. This is, again, where we have to take that, whether it's a meditation practice or just a Mm self-observation, right? This inquiry that Many of us get good at doing locked away in a room where we really want to learn how to hold that space and our awareness in real time. Because if not, our body will 
rely on those habitual patterns that are ingrained in our nervous system. Yeah. Yeah. I, what I have noticed is that there's definitely patterns in my nervous system that are ingrained, but I, I also, and I think many people do set up external uh, circumstances that reinforce that. So I choose partners, I, uh, you know, business partners, friends, all these, everything that I'm picking around me is someone who fits into my pattern already. And I am overlooking those people who go, this is not a pattern I want to get involved with. (laughs) And so in the same way that you or that I needed to go, okay, I need different internal things. I also needed the help of a therapist, a somebody, like I needed to go grab someone who was outside of my pattern, who might not have associated me with me as a boyfriend or a friend or something and say, I want to learn different ways of doing things that are not going to necessarily be 100% supported by my family, my friends, my my everything, because I've set them up <laughs> in order to, to keep this way of being going. And uh, my shift out of this is going to displease and some people will resist it. So just like there's internal resistance, you've probably set up a circumstance where there's external resistance as well. Yeah, I love that you're bringing up resistance and yeah. that's the reality. We will seek the familiar, even if mm-hmm. we will you know, affirm that we will never create there or be in that same relationship, there will be something physiologically that feels familiar in our body. Mm-hmm. And then in our mind, um, we have a part of our brain called the reticular activating system that helps us navigate the endless array of stimulation that we have to deal with as a human. There's just too much to take in. So we're literally vetting and deciding, like like filtering more or less, what we're going to pay attention to. And the meaning, because our mind is always assigning meaning, it's a meaning-making machine, we're going to rely on the same meanings again that we learn to assign in childhood. So we literally, like you're sharing beautifully, become a self-confirming machine where our body mm-hmm. is seeking the familiar. Then we're filtering out anything that could be possibly, you know, kind of in opposition to what we think, what we believe, what, you know, kind of our way of being, the way we even know ourselves. Some of us even identify with these very habitual, I call them conditioned selves in my new book, these neurobiological patterns. Mm-hmm. They become who we are. So now, right, our identity is at risk if we don't find ourselves even uncomfortably in the same situation and if we don't keep filtering the world in that confirmation. Because again, familiarity gives us a sense of control. It gives us a sense Mm -hmm. of, you know, uh, efficiency and our ability to deal with it because we've been down this path already, even if, again, it's not the path that we want. And then our mind colludes with it, only (laughs) allows us like blinders on to see it. And then before we know it, we have created the same confirmatory cycles over and over again. This is what Mm -hmm. I define as these intergenerational patterns that so many of us are carrying and have carried from so many generations. Yeah. For for me, it was uh, a huge, well, there's many of them, but one of them was codependency, which is like, look, you're going to have to get involved with me codependently in some way. And if you don't want to get involved with me codependently, like if you're a person that doesn't have that hook in you, like, well, we're probably not going to do business or get in a relationship or do anything. And so I think what can happen with me, with other people is there's oftentimes, and it's never true, and it's never totally true, even of your circle, I think, but it can feel like if I get out of this, I lose everything. Like the whole world, because the whole world wants codependency because the whole world that I created wanted that, right? Or the, and everybody, and I'm going to lose everything. And what I, after pushing through or getting through some of those experiences, I found both that there were people in my orbit that did not want codependency and moved closer to me as I began to heal this. 
and that my beliefs about, oh my God, I'm going to have to lose everything is certainly the form of some of my relationships had to transform, especially those foundational ones with mom and dad, like those needed to radically transform. And then relationship, uh, you know, the way that I was as a boss or the way that I was as a boyfriend, but I didn't lose everything. And I think that that's an important thing is that there's often a time you're like, I'm losing my mind. Mm -hmm. I'm going crazy. I'm going to alien everyone in the world because I've become this bad, awful person that can't relate to anyone around me. And that is not necessarily a symptom that you've lost your mind. It is that you are no longer a match for this dysfunctional system that you have colluded in building. And that can actually be a good sign. And that's why it's so important to get someone out of your orbit to be like, can you reflect back to me that I've not just gone crazy here? Yeah, I'm relating big time for me. Very much codependency was just, you know, entrenched in me. It's the only way I knew myself to be. And very similarly, Mm -hmm. when I worked through not only the physiological discomfort of tolerating a separation Mm -hmm. space, right? Not to be reliant, looking toward someone else. I had to tolerate all the mental discomfort of exactly those worries of, you know, not having this relationship on the other side, not having this connection on the other side with the reality being while I was developing the confidence to navigate that, you know, more and more over time. Okay. I am okay. I can tolerate this discomfort. And the reality on the other side of it was, Either relationships transformed as they did mm-hmm. within my family or a lot of relationships. And I went into what I call my cocoon stage, right, did shift and change. And actually, this was a large reason for even the inspiration between the whole, behind the Holistic Psychologist Instagram account, which then turned into the Self Healer Circle community, was beginning to feel like a desire for more authentically connected relationships and me looking around and not having many of them in my physical proximity and obviously seeing the social media and online world as a possibility, you know, for that terrain. That's really what inspired me to begin to use the account when I first created it as my own, not only like my own space to practice now in a more global way, although I had no expectation of how global it would be, just Mm -hmm. a place for me to be me to see, right, what resonance others would have. And then as the universal resonance really became clear to me, it really continued not only to inspire me and give me confidence of sharing my thoughts as they were, sharing my journey as it was, regardless of, you know, who felt what about it, if I should or shouldn't, because I was a psychologist talking about myself and all of the things Mm -hmm. that came with that, right? That is actually what kind of born and planted the seed for this kind of virtual community and the healing that I've gained from it and the reason why I'm now much more in like a public psychology, the way I yeah. would describe it, kind of field. And I, you know, run a community membership and I don't do one-on-one work was really born out of the healing nature, to speak to your point, of relationships, whether it's with that one supportive, reflective person you're describing or within a community. Um, it was the absence of having those relationships as I did create separation, which was very difficult to do. Mm. Can you talk about that cocoon phase? Because this is, I think, one of the major things that stops people from moving through it is that it feels uh, if you're an achievement type person and I had this phase where people are like, are you okay? You're not as gregarious. You're not as charismatic. You're not as fun to be around. You're like, and it, it very understandably looked like I was moving backwards and it is like you're you're this larva and you're moving around, you're eating leaves and now you're just a cocoon or I called it hibernating. I was a bear. I was ambling around and now I'm sleeping for an entire winter. And for me, that lasted, I think it's fair to say years. Uh, 
Can you talk about the cocoon phase and how how people can investigate if it's a healthy move into sort of an inner reflection or if it's an unhealthy withdrawal from the world and a retreat? How how can people suss that out so that they can have a bit more confidence moving into that phase? Because it sounds like, and I know this is true of myself, if you can really do the cocoon phase, you come out a butterfly and things are awesome. And it's so worth it, but it is such a scary thing to say yes to because there's no promises when you're in that cocoon. So I'm just, I just want to hear you talk about that. Absolutely. I just want to talk quickly about the cocoon phase and I'll try to hopefully offer a distinction in this explanation because I, again, this applies to the nervous system and even our ability to cocoon because Mm -hmm. as, uh, you know, overachieving codependent who lived in New York city for almost a decade with always something to do with someone around me. And I was a serial monogamous, always in a relationship, Mm -hmm. right? Never alone, never still who carried a lot of trauma in my body, a lot of inability to navigate the discomfort of, of being still. And again, the reason why I'm hyper-focusing on this, right, to go inward, right, is is a, is a la- our nervous system, let me word this way, our nervous system is what is going to allow us the safety to go inward or not. A lot of us mm-hmm. who are endlessly going, doing, hyper-vigilant and focused on the world around us, right, not able to kind of hit pause, are doing it because there's something that feels inherently unsafe of about being alone. Right? Mm-hmm. Maybe we were actually physically alone in childhood. Maybe like me, we were emotionally alone in childhood, right? It feels unsafe to be stopped alone. My body actually won't let me. If my, you know, if my um, heart rate is pounding, you know, my breath is all quick and my muscles are tense, my nervous system is actually telling me to do the complete opposite of be alone, right? So this is when we try to meditate and we're completely in a stressed out state and we have racing thoughts, get up, mm-hmm. you can't, right? That's our body's way of saying, no, Nicole, your priority mm-hmm. right now is your survival and you better get the hell out of here because there's something stressful. You can't be still. And I would see this. I saw that, re- like the reason why I was, I would schedule my free time weeks in advance with the fear of having an alone, I wouldn't spend any <laughs> time alone if I could help it. Right. Mm-hmm. In, in, went out with other people, you know, I, or was you get very, a phone call, you're constantly, oh, I'm not oh, alone. I just am on the phone all the I was, time. Oh, I, I, was phone days. I actually <laughs> yeah. had a very good yeah. best friend that I, again, I had to separate ways with, um, because it wasn't actually a very functional relationship at all. Who was always that person that we could just chit chat on the phone the whole time. Mm-hmm. Right. I never had to be alone. And I saw a similar kind of, um, habit in relationship when I was out with others. I would go mm-hmm. out and I got very good at being entertaining, at telling stories, mm-hmm. at filling the air. Because in reality, quiet and any pause in conversation was troubling for me. I was uncomfortable in even those silent moments mm-hmm. when with another person. So sharing that just foundationally, you know, because to make the distinction, right? Am I going alone in solitude? Is it that safe, nourishing, right? I'm mm-hmm. connected and I'm inward in my cocoon because that's what I need right now. Either I'm physically exhausted and burnt out from going and doing, right? Yeah. Or, or emotionally, or maybe I just want to explore and I'm curious about myself, right? Is it coming from that nourishing place? Or some of us disconnect because we've learned that connections aren't safe. That's what we do when we're uncomfortable mm. or overwhelmed, right? We remove ourselves because relationships didn't offer us that soothing co-regulation. They actually maybe overwhelmed us, right? Back to that helicopter parent in childhood, right? So we need to, again, attune to 
what aloneness, silence really is doing. Is it nourishing? Is it coming from that inward deep place again where we're, you know, kind of going and exploring and maybe giving ourselves some space to even identify what our needs are? Or are we doing it because connection feels unsafe? Because again, not that connection is necessarily unsafe, but we've learned it to be. Mm. I Yes. And I have found that you, you talked about when your heart is racing and you're meditating, it's, it's not, are you meditating or aren't you meditating or are you alone or aren't you alone? It's, are you present in your body or are you dissociating, freaking out, trying to get out of it? And you can look externally any way, right? You can be, you can be sitting there looking as Zen as possible, but internally it's, you know, you, and I see people who meditate consistently, but actually don't get the benefits of meditating because there's such a level of emotional unsafety that they can't drop into the experience. So for me, when I was often going, shit, it's been three months, it's been four months, it's like, I'm still not doing it. There were some moments of genuine relaxation where I was able to go, is this good for me? And the answer was yes. And there were other moments of like high stress where I was like, is this good for me? No, no, this isn't good for me. And I had to learn to trust the wisdom of that slower, regulated and I was like, man, this has been a long time. It's just, just keep, you know, trust. <laughs> you can continue to do this. And <laughs> learned that one voice was the voice of panic and another voice was the voice of a much deeper knowing that can be trusted. And so it's like, oh gosh, which I want to trust myself, but there's so many conflicting voices. And I found that that is a way to find a truer, more trustworthy voice is to really see, like you've mentioned, what's going on with your nervous system. And that'll give you an indication of, what sort of self-talk is going to be, <laughs> how, yeah. how reliable it's going to be. Yeah, absolutely. And I just want to add too, because I'm interestingly still learning how to navigate um, in terms of, you know, my own tendency to produce and a version of this conversation mm-hmm. of, you know, kind of going inward still. I'm finally living into the reality that I've come to learn is the case is that there are seasons, even mm-hmm. in our own individual life experience, seasons for creation and seasons four going inward and not Mm -hmm. creating and consuming or doing nothing and just being with our own thoughts. And again, I think that many of us for many different reasons, again, not not trying to, it's funny that school's coming up twice, but it's just coming to mind, Mm -hmm. right? Even work, right? It's it's so unnatural, this idea that we have to produce between a certain month span or a Monday to Friday work week between these certain hours. And again, I know some of these are societal realities that are the case, though I'm, and I, used to kind of conditionally hold myself up, right? I need to be producing Monday through Friday at all times. And I'm finally, again, embracing that I do believe humans, you know, universally are creative creatures. And just like the nature outside, there are seasons of, you know, consuming and going inward and just being and percolating and planting. And then seasons of going outward and producing and doing and connecting or whatever, that looks like for you. So I just wanted to add that because that's another Mm. area where I'm still very much on my own process and journey of even learning how to navigate my own kind of cocooning, if you will, creative cocooning in the face of knowing that I and might have people always wanting something right to come from me. So then again, Mm -hmm. it's that negotiation of checking in with and am I forcing myself and I'm always kind of holding myself accountable with like book projects and ideas and many things that I want to create into the world, right? What am I responding to? Is it really coming from 
the internal desire and want, do I want to do this thing? Do I have the resources to do yeah. this thing? Is now the time to action into doing this thing? Or again, is it coming from all that other crap? Yeah. you. This came up earlier, but I think it's, an, it's a great time, which is there is this tension between, I think a lot of people are afraid that if they listen to themselves, they'll become totally selfish, narcissistic uh, jerks. And that is why there is a loving attunement to other people. Well, other people, I have this gift to give, and other people want me to write another book. And you know, I shouldn't go to the bathroom right now because I don't want this person to be feel disrespected that I don't care about the speech that they're giving. And I know that there's not an easy answer, but I, I do want to highlight it's not what I want all the time, and it, it, irrespective of what is occurring outside of me. Nor is it. I attune to the entire world and that tells me who I am. How do we manage both social engagements, responsibilities, duties, and that listening to the internal, whether it's as the cycle of having to go to the bathroom or a cycle of I need a year off and I'm not writing any books and I'm not taking any clients, even though they see me as someone that could really help them. Like how, how do we navigate those seemingly uh, opposing drives? Yeah. I think universally in any relationship, whether it's between two people, between you and your productivity or your community or whatever it is, there's an energetic exchange. Mm -hmm. And, you know, foundationally, you know, for relationships to survive and to continue to thrive and be successful and sustainable, there's, of course, to speak to your point, a give and take, right? A negotiation, a honoring of differing needs, different energies, right? Different abilities to be present and supportive if we want to apply the conversation to relationships in particular, different abilities to produce or not produce if we want to apply the conversation to that we were just having. So energy is being exchanged. We're always in relationship to someone or something, the first relationship beginning with ourselves, mm -hmm. and then obviously with anyone and any entity outside of ourselves. So that's, in my opinion, in the energetic universe that I believe we all live in, an energetic reality. And saying that to say, I think the idea that some of us have been given societally, culturally driven from many different, you know, familial reasons of selflessness, you know, or selfishness on the other side of it, showing up in service. I call them the good person beliefs mm -hmm. that I know I had, right? This idea of needing to be endlessly avail available or at service of that person or that entity, right? At the detriment of our own self, not even factoring ourselves in. And mm -hmm. that I believe is problematic and dysfunctional because to be an energetically caring and compassionate creature, we have to, in my opinion, be energetically connected to the organ of compassion, actually the most powerful organ in our body, which is our heart, Yeah, right? To actually be loving in the way that we think we're loving, we have to be safely grounded, right? With a body that has needs met, that has emotions, that's in that grounded state of presence. That's, you know, having emotions because they color our world and they have great information. Though I'm not becoming overwhelmed or disconnected, I'm able to, right, be in even a point of negotiation. I'm even able to see your perspective as a different individual. I'm able to hold compassionate space and connection even when those perspectives differ. And yeah. when we are in a nervous system state of activation or we're having a stress response or a trauma response, again, that many of us are living in, we actually cannot be that. We all become, and I know this is an unpopular opinion, we all become narcissistic. We yeah. become self-focused. We are actually, even if we think we're serving them, we're managing their perception of yep. us. We're not actually able physiologically, because when we're in survival mode, it really just comes down to our evolution and the way we're wired. 
we are only focused on ourselves. And this doesn't yep. matter if it's your mom, if it's your partner, if it's your child. This is why, and I'll speak from my own lived experience, I can become hurtful. I can say mean things. I can do mean things, whether it's explosively mean things or disconnecting mean things. Oh, you'll miss me when I'm gone. Something I heard, right? In my childhood, we don't, we're not actually compassionate in those moments at all. And again, yeah. it, it's more underlying, I think, in these roles and these ways we serve and we think we're being good. But if that goodness isn't coming from that grounded, calm, connected, compassionate space of our heart, then in reality, we are a bit more self-focused than I think many of us are willing to acknowledge. And again, this is the basis of, of my book. So much of it is kind of built around the nervous system. And actually, to be right, the love we seek, it has to begin with that state of heart-brain coherence that actually then will create that safety for another individual, our ability to see them as separate, our ability to hold space for them as separate, to be kind and compassionate and caring, whether or not we choose to relate with them or not, mm -hmm. then we actually become that love. But again, it, it, it foundationally includes our body, our nervous system, and all yeah. of the conversation that we beautifully had. Yes, I, I'm right there with you. I think with a lot of this, I want to try to make it uh, approachable to someone who maybe hasn't had as much therapy or experience and holding spaces. What does that mean? So uh, zooming out, uh, I think that while we all have some... When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Um, always connection to our hearts. I did not have a conscious connection to it, even though I was a very good person for yep. an extremely long time. I became a philosophy major because my foundational question was, what does it mean to be good? I, I knew that if you donated 10% to charity, that made you a good person. So I donated 15 or 20. You know what I mean? I was yeah. like, yeah. I left gray room mm -hmm. for yep. just in case I was wrong. But it was not from a heart place. It was, and other people benefited from it. I did kind acts. They supported other people. But it was not from my heart. It was from, and I don't, I can speak about myself without being vicious. It was a narcissistic, how does this reflect on me? I'm afraid to be bad, so let me do good. And from that place, you can never offer the highest good to yourself or other people. <laughs> Ever. Even if you donate 30% or 50% or the shirt off your back, if you're not moving from, the, from a felt connection of your heart, and if you're going, I'm not sure about that, that's a great sign that this would be an area for you to start to, like if this doesn't deeply resonate with you, this is uh, really, really useful, tremendous work that you can do for yourself and for everyone around you. And uh, we, we talked about it, but one that I know that you do that has helped me tremendously has been breathwork, which is if you can Google holotropic breathwork, we don't need to go into it. There's a ton of tracks. I've left tracks for people on my podcast, but it gives you not a, oh my gosh, there's children in Africa and they need food, but a felt compassion sense, usually not for necessarily children in Africa, but for yourself, for the people around you, for your animals, for the person that you encountered behind the cashier. And it can take time to unravel and and then last in your daily life but that has been so powerful for me to know am i in my heart or not and then the nice thing is 
I have found that love takes, and this is a different conversation. I want you to be able to respond, but we can go here. Love looks very different than I thought that it did. I thought mm-hmm. love was saccharine and saying yes and giving, and love looks very, very different from the heart. Uh, and so, yeah, if you have any thoughts or things you wanted to jump in with, I'll, I'll pause there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just to go back to this right idea of being so selfless, the byproduct of that is is resentment. Whether mm-hmm. or not you actually feel right re- resentful of of the world around you, or you be just you become, and this is very much what was happening when I kind of reached the end of my to do list and I went through my dark night of the soul and into my cocoon stays. It was motivated from pure exhaustion, yeah. where I would fantasize right about and actualize a lot of ways about disappearing, about leaving, leaving my job, right? This idea of I energetically, right? So it wasn't necessarily that I was walking around mad at the world around me then. Mm-hmm. Some people are, you know, and that can very much not only damage our ability to be compassionate creatures, really cause harm to our relationships, to strangers we meet when we erupt from that place of resentment. Or it can very much look like, again, this just exhaustion of if we can't even, right, show up in service of ourselves because we're so depleted, how are we ever going to be able to engage in that energetic exchange. And, you know, for me, I'm very much, you know, breath work, the daily practices. Again, it's still a point of top of mind, accountability. I still have that pull to put my body to the back burner. Um, and while I have created enough connection, I have came to come to that same realization that love is a daily choice. And in my opinion, it's again, the choice to stay so committed to my own self-expression and to creating safety for the ones I love around me. And their self-expression, even if it's a difficult awareness, even if it's a difficult perspective, even if it's a difficult conversation, how to learn how to navigate conflict. For a long time, I thought love meant not having conflict at all, right? Mm-hmm. Being problem-free, right? This idea of the happy, healthy family, right, that I thought I had. In reality, we just didn't know how to navigate conflict. We were operating, yeah. right, as this codependent unit like we talked about. So very much um, living into still in a lot of ways teaching my mind and my body what authentic love how to live in that space i by no means have just like switched on the light switch and i'm there it's a moment to moment choice which again bringing it full circle really begins with well how well nicole are you taking care of yourself do you Mm -hmm. have that ability to have energy to exchange to open yourself up even again a little girl didn't know emotional connection still feels really uncomfortable being emotionally vulnerable and, you know, authentic with even those that I've committed to spend right my life with because that's unfamiliar and inherently still feels unsafe. So my hope for any of the work and especially this particular work around relationships in general, how to be the love you seek is really to maybe give a new definition because we're, we're operating on old ideas of love, yeah. on old relationship patterns, on old ways that we've learned how to create safety, on ill-sufficient or unsupported environments entirely. Again, often no, no one's fault, kind of yeah. generationally passed on. And I'm ever inspired because of conversations like this and communities like both of ours and people who are, you know, kind of coming to these new awarenesses and beginning um, to make these new choices and to actually live in action whether it's you know, breaking cycles, redefining love, learning new ways to be compassionate collaborators that I believe we're all capable of being. Mm-hmm. And I'm ever hopeful um, because I do believe this is how humanity is going to continue to evolve and change and move toward a more kind of harmonious that I do think we're capable, heart-centered existence. Yeah. Even those we disagree with and don't want to relate to, 
right? Mm-hmm. Creating the safety and the space to allow us all to find our way, the way that works for each of us individually. Yeah, that what you just described there is like a much larger space than I think existed in most families. And so when I think of what love meant in my suburban area generally, it was the ability to be polite on command. That was love. So love is say thank you, whether or not you're grateful, share your toy, whether or not you like that person, Uh, you know, say you're sorry, whether or not you feel sorrow. And what that teaches or inadvertently is compliance with social norms instead of a felt sense of connection. Because what you would ideally have is that a thank you arises out of a one, you did something for me. So I'm saying thank you to my grandma for this shirt that I hate that shows that sure. she doesn't even really know me. You know what I mean? Like she knows nothing about me. Mm-hmm. I'm one of 40 grandkids. And I got, you know, say thank you. It's, now you're teaching me to be fake to grandma. And I never had a relationship with that grandma. That was, you know, I got $20 shirts at, <laughs> and then I had another grandmother I, who I did not need to be told to say thank you to because it was, it was a very different relationship. Similarly, when, you know, what are the other ones? They're saying, thank you. Say you're sorry. I am just learning what sorry means. Now I've said sorry in my life, but I do not, I did not know that sorry comes from sorrow. It comes from sadness over a breach of connection that has not just, oh my God, I'm afraid that I pained you, but it hurts me to be separate from you in this way. And being told to be, and I, there was always a, I think, a weirdly healthy part of me that resisted saying sorry when I didn't mean it and made me someone who doesn't say sorry all that often. But I found out that that part of me was like, no, I'm hanging on for the real thing. I'm hanging on for the part of you that knows the depth of this word. And I think when we force children or people around us to ape love, to ape I'm okay to ape. I'm sorry. I'm grateful. Uh, you know, and we just practice the surface level of those. We miss the fact that it is totally available underneath if you give it time and space to work out. I hate you. You took that from me. How dare you know? All of those mean parts. They they do work out over time if there is space for them to be expressed. So beautiful. I love all of that, and just calling to mind uh, an Instagram post. Um, a lot of another add to the teachings. Mm. Don't say anything if you can't say something nice. Mm. Another God. version of that, right? Horrible. With this idea, <laughs> just tying this all together, this idea of self-expression and right mm-hmm. being seen and heard and what we're defining as nice and you know sharing your perspective mm-hmm. for anyone listening is actually a gift that you're yeah. going to give all of those around you. Of course, you can do it in a respectful way and a calm, you know, grounded way. And and saying hard things is a part of being a separate person of navigating these differences of and on your back end like you're sharing of taking accountability and responsibility and acknowledging when we've you know caused a pain and it really does again all beautifully come from being connected to ourselves and and our own emotions and again it, it that i think is another one of those examples of this idea on the surface right of what is constituting nice and if it's in alignment and in our authentic truth, whether it's our perspective or our emotional truth, whatever it might be, right, there is value in finding the respectful, calm way Mm -hmm. to say it, even if you've been taught it isn't nice for whatever reason it might be. Mm -hmm. And I have found that, you know, when I think of love, it's just larger, it's more spacious, it can contain more. And so for me, that is, and there are other people that are on their own journey. So for me, it has meant, okay, in the privacy of my own bedroom, 
I have the safety to fucking rage. <laughs> you know, like I have the safety to be a mean mother mm. about and bitter and resentful and blame and point the finger and how dare you with the understanding that this is not the deepest truth of who I am, but it is a necessary expression that if I ignore this and never attend to it, I every love that I give beyond that is going to be with a bit of resentment, with a hate, with the fact that I'm self-denying in order to get there. So in the space of my own bedroom, I can go fuck wild. In certain relationships, I can deliver hard truths, potentially with, you know, with some bitterness in them. And then in others, they require a degree of like very, very gentle touch and in sorting through what Mm -hmm. is what, with whom can I do this? And knowing that there has to be a space of just ultimate honesty, which is inside of myself uh, for whatever comes up. That learning has been very tough because one of the things that we can touch on now is I did not have healthy boundaries growing up. My boundaries were constantly transgressed. And so part of what that meant is if I had a feeling, I either shut it down or I just tell you the whole, I just, <laughs> I just give it all to you uh, because I didn't know how to mm-hmm. have flexible boundaries that were context dependent. And uh, I think you, you talk a lot about how people that struggle with being overly blunt and I know I felt this, feel this tear between I don't want to be inauthentic and I don't know how to do. That is a boundary issue. That is not an issue where you have to sacrifice any degree of honesty. It's just you probably don't have or were not modeled healthy boundaries. And there is a way to have 100% honesty and integrity and not destroy (laughs) other people needlessly uh, with that expression of, of what's going on inside of you. Yeah. And this, again, touches on where we where we began in a lot of ways, which is the first person that we need to be honest with mm-hmm. is ourselves, right? And for a lot of us, it's coming to terms with really hard, difficult realities and truths and feelings, mm-hmm. right? So that is a whole step and process, right? To actually allow in our awareness what is so or what was so or what our want or need is before even, right? We package it up and, and yeah. give it or communicate yes. it with someone else. So I want to emphasize that that's a step in and of itself because so few of us are connected enough, are self-centering. We can't say that because we're not good. We can't even think that because of what it might mean if that even crossed our mind or to have this need that's in opposition to someone else before I even tell them, I'm just going to squash that down. And, And then to speak to your point, very much like you, I'm relating to a lot of your journey of needing then to find, right, the boundaried ways to first create safety for that own exploration safety for our own ability to navigate and regulate our nervous system not to and those moments i would imagine i know for me when i'm saying things in a way that you know are hurtful are moments where i'm not in that calm grounded place where i don't Mm -hmm. hit pause or ask to resume the conversation or i pick up the phone before i'm really in a grounded place where i have the resources to you know be available to what might be on the other end and Mm. those again are all choices that we can begin to make for ourselves without requiring anyone around us to do anything so that when we do then practice communicating something that for a lot of us, you know, especially if we have all these conditioned reasons why we haven't done or said the thing for so long or it's going to be incredibly difficult. And then we're going to open ourselves up to what the reaction of this other person might be. Mm-hmm. And a lot of us, like you're sharing, kind of go when we don't have boundaries, we either get so tight boundaries or we don't say what's on our <laughs> mind that we say everything that's on our yeah, mind. Yeah. And again, it is because all of this, again, tracks back 
to the body, our ability to stay calm and grounded when we're having an upsetting feeling, mm -hmm. to communicate or to remove ourselves until we're into that calm, grounded place and regulate ourselves through breath work or grounding or whatever it is and make sure that we're consistently maintaining that ability and not just having the conversation because someone else wants to or because we're activated and we just need to say the thing actually hitting pause and returning either to our own self-regulation point or to that safe, you know, professional or other friend or grounded nervous system where we then can set ourselves up to then begin to speak the things that are difficult and stay grounded while we're doing that. And boundaries, you know, becomes the important component to that. Noticing when we don't have them and developing like you're sharing the ability to be flexible, to be nuanced, to tailor mm -hmm our expression and even our engagement with certain relationships contextually or relationally dependent. And I think this is something else that is important to unpack for a lot of us is we, we apply, many of us, I know I did, a one-size-fits-all model to this is friend. This is what mm. friend looks like, what friend yeah. does, what I do in friendship. And I'm learning that actually I have many different types of friendships mm -hmm. now. I have some that we connect on certain interests. I have some that we connect on certain activities. Right. Same thing with relationship. We kind of apply these one size fits all models and in, in the context of boundaries. Right. Yeah. To big relationship categories. And we don't develop. And this is an ability that we can develop for ourselves. Like you're sharing this ability to be nuanced and contextual mm -hmm. and to be engaged with different relationships in different ways and evolve then different relationships. If we are going with an expectation that is not being met for whatever reason. Right develop other relationships where we can get those needs met. So boundaries becomes the space that we can explore ourselves and also then better explore and connect with other people and also tuning into if you are someone that is applying a very unhelpful one size fits all ex you know kind of expectation across relationships and creating the possibility that relationships can look different and that might mean different boundaries, different ways of mm -hmm. being, different ways of connecting in different relationships. It doesn't lessen the relationship. It just creates more diversity, more difference, and in my opinion, more harmonious and interconnected relationships where both people's authenticity can be honored without trying to pressure or force or coerce or manipulate or all the things that we do to try to fit people into what we mm. think it should be or should look like or should feel like. Yeah. I'd love, I'll, I'll share a story about boundaries because I'd love to give people something concrete to sink their teeth into because I know that if you, if you told me, Hey, Charlie, you have weak boundaries three years ago, I'd been like, what are you talking about? I am, I am so tough. And so, and oftentimes weakness can dress itself up in get away from, you know, like super strong because behind that, I have strong boundaries is once you're in, you could take everything, <laughs> you know, what I mean? you like, I will, I, it's, it's just, yes, always <laughs> once you're in. So I have this front of a strong boundary and inside of that very, very weak boundary. <laughs> so just one example. And uh, I appreciate her allowing me to talk about her on the podcast. My mom, we're working a lot of this stuff out and it is definitely improving, but, uh, just one small example of how this occurred is she visits me here. I have a wonderful home that for some reason, it's not my, you know, I rent here, but it has two showers in the master bedroom. And my, there's other showers available, but my mom would use the shower in here. And it wasn't like she was doing, you know, inappropriate or anything, but it was just, she was entering into my bedroom when she wanted to. Um, and she would knock on the door, but it was just like, that was okay. And it took me a while. I was like, I don't really mind, you know, there's nothing wrong with that. And then it's I, I kind of, yeah. And it was this like slowly creeping 
could you, could you not do that? And I didn't have a good reason. It felt so inappropriate for me. Like, I don't, I, you're not doing anything wrong, but I just, I don't, I just don't want that. And then initially she received it as you're telling me that I'm doing something wrong. I, I, I didn't mean to, I didn't mean, you know, it was a bit of a defensive reaction on her part. And I realized that our pattern had been when I had a boundary of it, it that it wasn't saying you're doing something wrong. It's just, I would just prefer to be alone right now. My mom received that as the, like the boundary had spears pointing out of it at her as if she had done something wrong or bad or, or violent towards me. And so in order to avoid causing that reaction in her, I just, she, okay, you could shower in here. Okay. You can come, you could, and, and it became yes, because I don't want to hurt you. And it's not that important. And in learning, you know, that feeling that I have of mild discomfort that I can't justify is important. It's, it, it is, it is important. Mm-hmm. And I'd prefer if you did something else and I could say that with love. And this is another thing that you still might receive this as hurtful. And that doesn't mean that I am communicating hurtfully or without love. That was a very challenging one for me to, to wrestle with, which is you can sit in the most grounded love and people will sometimes receive that because of what they have experienced as an attack or hurt. And so learning, first find yourself and then bring that as best you can to someone else. But their reaction does not define the energy that you came from is was still is a very complicated thing to sit with, especially when that person is a parent who you you know you love and want to be close with and and all of those other things are mixed up with. Yeah, I really appreciate you giving that a very concrete example. And you know, again, it it oftentimes we do carry that, you know, childlike tendency to personalize. Mm-hmm. Right. reactions and and more often than not the reactions that people are having around us again whether it's mom and in your instance mm-hmm. or partner or whomever are more to do with them and what they're feeling inside and their own you know conditioning which is contributing to that and likely nervous system dysregulation which is causing that a bit you know that feeling of personalization personalization and offense and how dare you not tell me to go in your room and I did something mm-hmm. bad and again all of that is much more connected to Likely, you know, what happened with mom and very similarly mm-hmm. in my family, even any gesture or gesture or movement toward creating any space, declining the invite for Sunday dinner, mm-hmm. like I was sharing earlier, or not yeah. picking up the phone and, you know, beginning to communicate when it was or wasn't a good time, very much would result in a, a personalized reaction of, oh, what, don't I matter to you anymore? Isn't this family important mm-hmm. to you anymore? Or, and especially if there was what was could have been perceived in the family as a stressful moment, right? And, uh, you know, a seemingly like health crisis call, though, again, so consistently they happened, it mm-hmm. would be even more elevated. How dare yeah. you not yeah. pick up this phone in this moment? And that is the reality um, for a lot of us. It's not just doing something new for ourselves, which is going to be inherently uncomfortable because it'll be unfamiliar and it'll be challenging a lot of our conditioning, though a lot of us are met with a reaction of sort from someone else and their conditioning and their pain. So, Mm -hmm. you know, having those moments of, you know, asking for space for me and and tolerating, you know, hearing reflect it right back. How dare I? I am selfish, you know, putting myself Mm -hmm. first or whatever it was and beginning to understand that the reason, you know, even sometimes the reason I needed space had nothing to do with them and the event. It had something to do with 
what was going on in my relationship sure. or in my professional life, mm-hmm. right? Not I, I wouldn't have been able to attend an event for anyone. It had nothing kind of personalized to my family or whomever I was mm-hmm. declining the invite to. Yet we have that tendency, many of us, to hear it as an attack on us. And then yeah. depending on our own ability um, to navigate those moments, we might be on their, or their inability, I should say, to navigate those moments, we might be on the receiving end of having our worst fear confirmed. Mm. Right. And of, of being really challenged in those ways. So it's uh, the flip side of that is if, if you can receive a request for space, whether made verbally or if somebody's just not answering your text or something and you can not necessarily personalize it, that is such a gift to yourself and to the other person yes. and is far more likely to make that relationship work, even just, you know, guys when they want to get a girl to come out and say hey you want to go out hey you want to say if you could get like i'm not promising this is going to happen but a little bit of breathing room would go a long way in terms of boosting the odds because right what she's receiving from you right now is pressure and need and that she needs to if she's going to spend time with you is going to be meeting a need of yours somebody who she doesn't even know very well and she's got a whole life of other stuff going on uh, and so it's funny, all of the things which to me were tactics to my young 20 self, which is wait three days or this, <laughs> there's, there's, there's deep emotional reasons that these things are important that go beyond you got to play hard to get. It's like, no, people want generally to be around those people that can manage their own needs and not add more to their plate, except when done consciously. When you could say, hey, I need help. I love you. Can you support me? Is very different than covertly trying to get someone to do something for you. So I don't want people to think that you need to have all your needs met individually and you can't ask the people you love. That is not the case at all. Yeah, no, absolutely. Like I said, it's an exchange. There is a need mm-hmm. for support. Sometimes there is a need for presence. Yeah. Sometimes there is a need for assurance for someone yeah. being on the other end of that text and saying, I still love you and yeah. I, I just need this space right now. Mm -hmm. And all of that can be, again, a grounded conversation and negotiation, a compromise, a give and take, Um, though, again, very much relating to my inability for a very long time of of not, you know, projecting the old assigned meaning to what space meant. Because in my childhood, my mom, again, for for no ill intent for her own ability to navigate her emotions, disappointment and anger in general, which I very much continue to struggle with myself, um, would give the silent treatment. So for me, silence actually did mean the relationship was damaged. There's a yeah. disconnection here. And yeah. I saw that play out time and time again where I would harass. If I wasn't harassing and some degree of upset about how you better respond to me right now or that's it, I'm leaving and this relationship is over and you don't care about me, right? It could escalate into that. It would be a more covert way if there wasn't upset of just making plans and scheduling every day, you know, well, tomorrow night we're doing this and the next night we're doing this and kind of just trying to bridge that space or not leave space for space, which could Mm. on a very surface, you know, I'm charming. I'm just trying to hang out with you all the time, Mm. but really I'm just trying to, you know, collapse the possible space that I could feel and the worry that I'll feel when that space occurs. Or like I said, there are absolutely moments where that space would escalate. And then I would do exactly like my mom did, yes, either in yes. my mind's eye, you'll miss me when I'm gone, or actually tell the person, well, this is it. This is the final straw. Yep. You're not answering me is confirmation that you just don't care. My language, you don't consider me. And so mm. this is just affirmation that this relationship isn't right for me. And mm. I'd like endlessly break up 
and not mean it. And then, you know, the connection would happen. <laughs> Please no. get to hear what actually happened or not. And I'd sheepishly be like, oh, I don't really mean that, you know? Uh, yeah. And, you know, I would actually pull the trigger and just leave to protect mm. myself because I couldn't tolerate what that space could possibly mean. I assigned it yeah. all meaning, right? Space meant I did something wrong, bad, I disappointed, I upset someone I loved. And then again, I would go into all these gymnastics of pursuing, of trying to make myself more appealing. And if it didn't work, mm -hmm. of just getting angry and saying, yeah. I'm going to punish you and I'll show you the same pain I'm feeling right now. So fascinating that that the experience that most matched your mother was underneath a coping mechanism that was on its surface very different, which was this charming, pleasing person who was totally fun and wonderful to be around. And I think this is extremely common because we have this one, as we've discussed, uh, we, we model what we learn, but also two, we don't want to do it that way because we've been on the flip side of it. So we have this surface level veneer <laughs> of, in your case, I'm super fun, charming to be around. Why would you ever want to be apart from me? And it's like, nah, I still want to be apart. It's like, boom, right back to like, now here's mom. And, and, I see, and I've seen, you know, for me, realizing that I carry that from my dad because I've... I'm never going to be like him. I'm never going to be like, you know, I am so different for, and then just going, oh my God, <laughs> it is, it is. Uh, and there's this beauty and gifts and love in all of that and a deeper understanding of where he was coming from. And, you know, all of those wonderful things have happened. But I think that people do not realize the degree to which their parents are like some stress away from just being the person that they fully become at any given moment in their 20s, 30s, 40s, whatever. Yeah. And again, depending on the relationship we had, how confronting, mm -hmm. yeah. how difficult, right? Because now we have to confront ourselves and whatever, yeah. you know, our, our patterns and, and the devastation that it caused. It brings us right back in that childhood and that wounding and that pain and you know, not having our needs met and that mm -hmm. neglect or whatever it is for us, right? And now, again, if we don't have the emotional resilience, right, how difficult that is yeah. to navigate. Yes. So I want to, uh, we just, I want to, I think we can wind up talking sort of about, we, we've done some of this, but I want to hear what you notice, particularly to men and women. So I saw that you had a post about the types of things that you see often in men. One of the hallmarks that everybody can point to is they've got one emotion and it's anger. Uh, can you talk about broadly across American society, what is going on with men from a psychological, emotional thing. We hear a lot about toxic masculinity. What is your perspective on the masculine and men generally in, let's say, America? Yeah. Um, globally, I think yeah. humans struggle, adults mm -hmm. struggle, are ill-equipped to deal with their emotion. If we mm -hmm. want to kind of direct the conversation around along more gendered lines. But I would say that globally, I think sure. women, it just looks different. Yeah. Um, again, we've adapted. Maybe we can maybe relate more to like, right, the pleaser, the helper, the mm -hmm. like, you know, selfless, you know, doer for someone else, the caretaking role, things like that. There's just different adaptations. So I think at our core, we all really, really struggle to tolerate and to navigate our emotional experiences. And even more so, I think the societal messaging, the familial messaging that's passed down. I even think about just evolutionary roles, like back in time in terms mm -hmm. of what certain, you know, gendered individuals more or less did or were responsible for in our earliest groups. And it did look different. And there's different energies and different expressions and, you know, different ways that, you know, the world is navigated. And 
Mm-hmm. Saying that to say then we have all of this different societal messaging that is often kind of born on this idea, just go to an anger, right? That men's role is to be tough and to pillage and to, you know, mm-hmm. take take control of or to defend, you know, and in an evolutionary way, you know, likely there was a group of male identified individuals at some time where that was the natural energetic expression that benefited mm-hmm. that community and obviously and you know, female identified individuals at that time maybe energetically were more naturally you know kind of shifting into other roles and then so with that then i do think got layered upon layered and all of this idea of you know weakness and what it is and maybe the one appropriate emotion again being this more kind of angry controlling kind of way of being that then gets reflected back from society and oftentimes celebrated then by other kind of messaging that just continues to lock um, us in our cycles, whatever it is. And I think, you know, with women on the other side of it's very much like the caretaker, the putting others mm-hmm. first, you know, this kind of idea of being good girl, if we really want to gender the kind of good person conditioning, I think that can, you know, very much be a part of that. Um, and, you know, again, I think at our core, we are more similar. We have mm-hmm. the same range of emotions that we are tasked to figure out how to navigate we're similarly ill-equipped, um, <laughs> you know, and I do think that unifies us are just adaptations and the ways that we've navigated it and been validated have kind of evolved us to look very different. But I think the work really is is the same, right? Becoming aware of what is the conditioning that we're carrying that's disconnecting us. You know, if you are, you know, a male listening and you know, anger you're really comfortable with, you know, there are many other human emotions, you know, to make (laughs) space for, you know, and again, it begins with you. Are you able to even be sad in your room, right? Are you able to, you know, kind of grieve for maybe what wasn't in your room? Are you able to create space for yourself before then you're Mm -hmm. able to safely communicate that to someone else? And again, that applies to women, even listening to, right? If you only kind of cycle around one emotion, you know, to hear me say that, in my opinion, there's like six core emotions, you know, um, if they're not present, if you also can't come back or rebound from an emotion, how long we're spending in emotions is also a signal for mm-hmm. our ability or our inability and our nervous system's inability to come back to that calm, grounded state. For some of us, right, having emotions, anger lasts for days, weeks of resentment. My mom, my, that silent treatment I was sharing, would go on at, at, at the time I can recall it being its worst when she actually found out that I was gay was almost probably two months Wow! Like of time of that feeling that my mom <laughs> wasn't actively consciously being, I'm not talking. she was caught in that feeling that was so alive for her for that long that wow. she actually couldn't rebound herself to reconnect with me. And then when she finally could, at whatever point that would be, it would be as if life just nothing happened yeah (laughs) like nothing happened you know like just get back on track and because that really did track on to my mom's emotional world she was Mm -hmm. stuck in the emotion and then finally her body downshifted and whether it was disappointment or anger or whatever it was that i upset her caused emotionally that finally went away Mm -hmm. and she was able to return to baseline and then our relationship was able to go back so again any of you listening, right? If emotions are are living, I mean, there's kind of physiological, scientific, I think the, I cite it in my first book, How to Do the Work. It's upwards of like 90 seconds of the physiology, the neurotransmitters, the shifts in our nervous system and sensations that 
are associated with the emotional experience. So mm. the reality of it is we're living in them for much longer. A, because yes. our nervous system is stuck and can't downshift physiologically. Or we're not giving it the chance to because we're going on that walk to calm down, but yeah. we're rehashing <laughs> the story that yeah. actually I come home more upset. Right? Yeah. So now my Because I've, I've got six new ways oh, I'm going to poke at you now because I, I thought, yeah, yeah. Six new ways and six other ways that you've actually yeah, yeah, done this to me yeah, that yeah. I never brought up for, and now, right? So uh, our mind then gets involved. Yeah. And so when I say, you know, 90 seconds, I know that's not the lived experience that most of us are having. But yeah. That is our actual physiological ability. Um, we can cultivate that in ourselves. So are mm. we feeling all of the ways? Are we feeling sad? Are we feeling joyful? Are we feeling fearful? Are we feeling disgusted? Are we feeling surprised? Those being core emotions. And can we come back from feeling that way and come back to calm, to peace, to baseline? Even me saying that for some of you listening, you might never, I know for decades, I never really felt peacefulness in my body, grounded presence in myself. I wasn't mm. able to actually feel that way because physiologically I wasn't. I was stuck. For me, it was in worry, stress, yeah. fear on the kind of fear core emotion cycles that I was stuck in that lasted for decades until again, I did the work with my body. Yeah. I learned how to be in my own grounded presence and actually how to regulate my emotions so that I could finally not only express them to myself that I was having this emotion, then express them to the world. You gave uh, the first question I asked, which is what is it like to not be seen? I thought that was, I mean, that was the best example of two months of silent treatment and back in. And what it is to not be seen, I think I, I have an answer now, which is it is oftentimes a parent who is so stuck in that loop of unintentional narcissism, which is how does this make me feel? How does this make me feel? How does this make me feel? That by the time they break that loop, they haven't been able to pay attention to you for two minutes, two hours, or two months. And so they could say sorry, but they can't even mean it because they weren't there for two, for two months. And so that is what it is to not be seen, is to go, okay, can you know, and when we're just back, which is, oh, you, you completely missed how devastating this was to me. You genuinely have no idea because you were so in your own stuff. And uh, that is, yeah, it's a wonderful... I mean, I don't mean wonderful, but that is a yeah. quintessential example mm -hmm. of what it is to not be seen. Yeah, absolutely. And I love your emphasis again on they, you know, caught in their own, not mm -hmm. able to even mm -hmm. remove or zoom out to notice the other individual again, whether yeah. it's your child, your partner, you know, your mom that that is there having yeah. a different experience and yes. experiencing you in a different way. So that's why it does feel like they're just back to business as usual and mm -hmm. you're left trying to A, make sense of what yeah. has happened. And again, I just want to speak this too for any of us who maybe do the silent treatment ourselves. Moments of repair are so incredibly important for a, yeah. a secure connection. And what that simply means is after you come to, right, developing the ability and the awareness to have that moment of accountability and responsibility. And or if you're not sure how it might have affected those around you to ask and be mm -hmm. curious and then sit through the discomfort of hearing how it might have been because I do I fear and I hear a lot of people's concerns of well I do this is this irreparable now or is this relationship no actually secure relationships are built around moments of disconnection and moments of Repair. reconnection so yeah. if you're coming to the awareness that there's more <laughs> moments of disconnection in your world that's okay you can cultivate then the awareness to 
even if you're not sure or can't imagine how it might have been for someone else on the receiving end of whether it's the explosion or the disconnection, to ask. And again, to do so when you're in a calm, grounded place, to hear and to navigate that conversation like you're beautifully sharing when you're actually connected um, to the place. Someone that I really admire in the field, his name's Frank Anderson. We did a parenting um, collaboration recently together and he in the context of parenting, though applies to everyone, was saying, don't apologize or reconnect with your child until you're able to feel compassion for them. Yeah. Or even care to inquire yeah. about curiosity, I could add, before maybe even compassion. Maybe you don't know what their experience is to be compassionate about. But until you can generate that curiosity that there was someone else on the other end of an experience that involved you in some way, your presence or absence, whatever it was, until you can honestly care yeah. and be curious to ask, right? Because we do, we rush, we feel uncomfortable, we go back or like, you know, and we're not in the place to actually care to hear. You know, mm-hmm. we're kind of going through the motions of like being back and like saying, well, how did that make you feel? But really we're like, but I we're don't the, care uh, because I felt this way, you know, yeah. <laughs> really generating, I love this, is like beautifully mapping onto our whole conversation, really generating that curiosity to be yeah. able to sit And then through the discomfort of maybe hearing something really difficult that how you were resulted in. I am so glad that you said that because to to have left people on the hook with that shame of, oh my God, I do this. That is what keeps people from apologizing. And I can tell you that I've received apologies from, say, my dad that were 25 years after the fact that changed my life. You know, hit me, hit me a, a real connected sorry 25 years later is infinitely better than a disconnected sorry 25 seconds later yes. and it's it is uh and you get infinite chances you, you really you, you can always come back to it uh I, 25 could have been 50 years and it would have been just as meaningful to me so uh i say that hopefully that people who you know myself included we've all been that person who has ruptured a relationship who can feel that and go the shame that is keeping me from sitting openly in front of them because this is beyond repair it is not i think mm-hmm. most people do not know the beauty of repair especially like the worse the fracture the more beautiful the repair can be if it is done honestly and sincerely with a genuine curiosity and not a forced i'm not the bad guy anymore let me sit and do my part mm. yes absolutely and just to again play another side of that for those listening who, you know, on the other side of wanting an re- apology for whatever reason, the person is not alive, the relationship is so mm-hmm. disconnected, we don't actually know how to access them, they won't mm. give us that, right? We can, you know, offer our own self mm-hmm. that, you know, forgiveness, you know, and, and embodying that same, everything we've been talking about, the same compassion, the same empathy, the same understanding, right? And even, you know, the desire to want and wish things to be different, we can kind of you know, ease our way into the reality of how it was. Because again, the difficult side for some of us is for whatever reason, we might not hear what we want to hear, right? Though we can continue to show up and to give ourselves and to meet our needs and to create the relationships that are securely connected. That is how we offer ourselves, I think, the ultimate kind of healing gift in absence of having those beautiful moments um, that absolutely Mm -hmm. can come at any time. 
Um, but I did want to speak to that as well. Sure. For imagining people listening, like, well, what if I, you know, what if, if I know dead? I'm never yeah, getting yeah. mad or I know yeah. this person and for whatever reason, it's never going to come. Yep. Um, there is so much healing that we can offer ourselves, um, mm. even in absence of, of having those those beautiful reparative moments. Though, yes, to speak to your point, they can happen at any time. And if it is shame, I, for me, I, I struggle. I don't like to be seen less than shiny. I don't like to be anyone other than mm. that good person that... Right. So having to even apologize and say, oh, I did something and I have to hear mm-hmm. how, you know, it's it's hard. It's mm-hmm. it's it's difficult. So, you know, learning how to tolerate and how to actually and actually in the book, one of the last chapters is, you know, how to offer an apology, kind of the practical steps mm-hmm. of what that really does look like. And it looks more like listening from our heart um, than actually, you know, kind of talking, explaining, saying mm-hmm. the right thing. It's, it's, much here's more why a, I did it. Here's why I did it. Here's state. what I was feeling. That is yes. not it. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And again, I'll speak to my own experience of as of recent, I can still go into that defense mode, right? Mm-hmm. The court case of <laughs> uh, building my, you know, kind of reason for, for you just to see my perspective yeah. and, it's not always, you know, in those moments about our perspective. And it's really difficult to put our perspective aside. And again, it all really comes down to, can we actually physiologically access that space to do that? And then emotionally, can we contain all of the different ways without trying to fix it or defend it and just be with it? Mm, beautiful. This is the last actual question that I have for you, uh, because I've, I've heard it underpinning a lot of it. And I see it in the book and it's been true in my life is that even the example of someone has passed away and died, how do I get that repair? There's an element of my healing that has only been possible, and it brings up such shame in me, but it's true, uh, with, a, with a felt sense of spirituality and a felt sense of connection with my soul. And those are not words that I could have used without grimacing and still struggle to uh, just a short time ago. And... I don't say that merely because it's an effective strategy. I say it because it feels deeply true. I see it in your book from the very first needs of the soul that I I do not believe that one, real confrontation with reality is possible, but secondarily, a deep understanding of who you are and a deep healing without, you don't need to take my word for it, you can find your own way, but something beyond, as you to say, the personality. And I would just like to hear you allude to that for people who might be curious. Another moment I'm really resonating with your yeah. journey, actually, in one of the chapters um, where I dive into even the concept of soul. I mean, I would have mm-hmm. cringed, rolled my eyes, wondered yeah. where the science is, show me it on a map, you know, mm-hmm. like, what are you talking about? Um, and it really, you know, has taken me unpacking. And, you know, I think we find our way. And even in, in my workbook, uh, How to Meet Yourself, it's very much based on our, your authentic self, which I would very much akin in definition to this concept of the soul, your unique energetic expression. And as often I do, I think I've probably frustrated a lot of buyers of that workbook because I imagine they were expecting to open up to a prescription of mm-hmm. where's my authentic self. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I have it um, separated into three different sections and we go through connecting with the body and all of the conditioned habits that live in the body that, you know, are dysregulated our nervous system. And the next section is the next layer of the onion that I'm kind of gesturing, peeling back of is mm-hmm. the mind and the ego and the inner yep. child, all those stories. We've been talking about this, this in the entire conversation, right? All of those old meanings that we're assigning and identities and roles we have to play. And then you enter section three, which is 
now that we have the safety and the awareness and we've started to peel back some of the impact of our conditioning, then now we have the space to begin to explore that deeper, unique, energetic expression, our perspectives, our thoughts, our wants, our creativity. I kind of cited some things earlier, our imagination, all of that unique to usness. That is, in my opinion, what our soul is. So to find our way there, again, it's not a kind of, you know, three steps of checking boxes. It's really this process of, you know, kind of removing. And I think what we are then left with not only is our unique expression, it is the awareness that we are infinitely and inherently connected. Whether or not the meaningful connection for any listeners, right, is the natural world around us of which we are a part. We're made of the same elements. We are energetically communicating with all of the energy around us, whether it's, you know, and adamant objects like the humans around us or the animals or the beings or the plant life, like we are just connected. And for mm-hmm. some of us, that's the meaningful kind of more universal connection of our soul. Because again, this all goes back to this idea that when we say we're social interdependent creatures and right, that's how we kind of um, have the most harmony and we can not only survive, we can thrive. I mean, we are actually energetically interdependent with the world around us. And if, you know, it's not nature for you, if it is a, you know, kind of more spiritual entity or being or kind of like religious based, you know, kind of connection, I think that's what joins us is this idea that I'm not alone individual. Mm-hmm. I might, you know, have been conditioned to operate as one disconnected, though when I peel back enough layers, I am really face to face with the fact that I am part of something greater. And again, then we can uniquely define what that meaning is for each of us and what are the moments in our life where we can feel most connected and obviously staying committed to creating with boundaries and all the work we've been talking about, the ability then to drop in. Um, And I think that's, again, when we begin to collectively heal is when we do not only come to the awareness, but come to the action of living Mm. in that interconnected state. Um, so many of us feel alone. I know for me, I actually opened the book of, you know, the saying alone in a crowded room. You know, I was living that. Like I said, it had a world around me of you know, New York and relationships and doing. And But, you know, at my core, why I felt so disconnected is because I wasn't connected to my soul. Mm-hmm. Not only was I not being me, I was really cut off from what, again, I think is our inherent connection to all that is. Yeah. Yeah, that's a wonderful place to leave it. And I can say what you just said at the end there, which is the lack of connection to everything that is so available to connect with because of the lack of connection to soul. For me, that was a huge piece of the puzzle and one that I would have fought, fought, fought <laughs> to avoid. But um, topic, larger topic for another day. Thank you so much. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that you've got courses, you've got those sorts of things out there. Uh, what What's available and if people want to learn more about what you're up to? Absolutely. And thank you. Um, I really love this conversation, Charlie. Mm. And obviously, thank everyone for listening. I really, truly mean it when I say that this is how we, we do our part. Um, and I do think we are energetically connected and, and the direction that we are moving toward as a collective is, in my opinion, so inspiring. So I'll start with all of the free accessible resources because they're always a priority um, for me pretty much across any social media platform at this point. There is some presence of the handle holistic psychologist, mm. whether it's TikTok or um, Instagram, where it all began, Facebook, 
YouTube, Twitter, or X, whatever we want to call it, all the things. <laughs> so I like to shout out those. Um, I do have a membership. It's called Self Healer Circle. Uh, we open up for enrollment three times a year. For more information, you can check out selfhealercircle.com. Uh, I have books out. They're pretty I mean, much- take, a- take a moment there. So you like walk people through some of the exercises and things that they can do. Sell this. Oh, yes. I, so I, the, I, I, the, I want people yes, to join it. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the circle. So the circle, again, was born out of this desire. As the community grew on Instagram, I started to hear people who you know, wanted um, a bit more, uh, well, a, a private. Um, a lot of people were having family members following on social media. Like, I want something mm-hmm. away from social media. Um, and I was really starting to explore and experiment with ways to integrate a community-based healing model. Um, I hadn't seen it being done and virtually really kind of struck out to me. And a lot of the community, you know, was and continues to be global. Um, so for me, it was really experimenting with yeah, how to translate every month we drop a new course. Um, and so we'll talk mm-hmm. about, you know, everything that we've talked about from, you know, kind of energy, nervous system work to attachment, inner child, ego. I mean, at this point, it's been open since um, I think November 2019, maybe is when we had our first enrollment. So every month we have a course. So we have a whole course library, um, not only of kind of concepts, PDF worksheets that you can take and begin. We're always about insight and action. Um, We have at this point now a weekly live event, which means um, I'm either doing a workshop or we have someone coming in from the outside in their kind of area of wisdom sharing. We have, you know, community connection workshops. So ways where in real time you can attend live events. We now have built out um, the technology to, we house all of this on our private um, um, website, I guess you would call it. And we have built in a portal. It looks very much like a social media platform. So every member has their own little, you know, profile page and can interact and put up posts and interact with other members and connect along the way. So it's been so, I mean, like I'm having chills when I talk about it. It was born out of an idea, um, you know, a a desire for a more community-based environment and just watching it evolve, not only in terms of what we've been able to build to make it possible, but really the community continue to evolve. All of the excitement that we continue to have around each and every launch um, with members, you know, who have been here many since the beginning of the membership itself. And just the excitement is just such a such an inspiring place to be. So it's called Self Healer Circle. Um, I don't know when this will air, but we're opening up September 1st and then again on January 1st. Oh, it'll be so, right right around then. Yeah. Perfect. So if anyone is interested, you can jump Maybe on the Maybe a few days after, list. but it'll, it'll be up. It'll be uh, up. It'll, when, uh, it, yeah. Open enrollment actually will last about a week. Um, yep. We have a wait list only enrollment to avoid kind of the panic and the stress yeah. nature and the crashing servers that we've lived through. So <laughs> any information, selfhealercircle.com. And then of course I have uh, the three books, which are available at retails, except for How to Be Love You Seek, that is coming out at the end of November, though it is on pre-order. Cool. Amazing. I love the community aspect. It's another conversation, but I think that's a piece that's been very tough to get right and to how do you use social media to actually foster yeah. those those connections and not superficial, you know, yeah. whatever. Um, but thank you so much. It's been wonderful chatting with you, Nicole. Thank you so much for having me.